On this episode of Plant Killers, we'll explore one nation's most notorious fruit and vegetable killer, bad dirt. What makes bad dirt so bad? The answer, the ingredients. But fear not, true crime enthusiasts. This story has a happy ending. New miracle Grow organic raised bed in garden soil. It's made with quality organic ingredients from upcycled green waste like compost and aged bark. Unlike the other guys who can't say the same. Looks like bad dirt's murdering days are over. Thanks to miracle Grow. Join us next time on Plant Killers. And we're back with an all-new episode of Keep It. I'm Ira Madison III. I'm United States traveler Louis Fertel reporting from Chicago, Illinois. Home of not even Oprah anymore. What do they have now? Are the Cusacks still here? Anyway. (laughs) And we are excited to be joined by our wonderful guest host today, Tracy Thomas. Hi, I'm very excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Normally when we start on Zoom, we're all like like Ira and I and Aida when she's here are just like decrepit shells of human being. Tracy, effervescent right off the bat. I was like, oh, this is going to be a happy episode. Pardon. Let me check my files for one of those. Okay. Well, I had to I come in this. with energy because I'm like 40 years older than Aida. And since I'm taking like the youthful seat, I had to like, you know, freshen up, wake up, take a shower, like try to tap into that youthful energy. Okay. We love that. We love that. Um, we will sap that from you a la Tuck Everlasting. So get ready. <laughs> Um, you host a podcast called The Stats, which is about books. Lewis famously doesn't read. So I don't know, I don't know what those this. look like, so you have to be descriptive. <laughs> okay, so books are so do you know what paper is? Um, a little bit. Okay, so basically that with words. No, so the podcast is all about books. Um, and I interview different authors and other book lovers. So it's not all authors. And then once a month, we do a book club. So this month we're doing Waiting to Exhale by Terry McMillan with oh, Nicole yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So it's, uh, that will be next week's episode. And we're going to do a whole deep dive because the book ages not great actually oh interesting i could see that yeah i mean i watched the movie and i was like oh wait this also isn't that great anymore you know angela has a strong um presence Mm -hmm. and you know a lot of films that are not my faves anymore but like stella got a group back is still great i you know i've never seen that oh you gotta see that we gotta see that yes Whoopi Goldberg is Whoopi Goldberg is iconic in that film. Okay. Like she is truly stealing the show. <laughs> Who's that woman? Oh, Layla Rashan in Waiting to Exhale, though. Yeah. I enjoy that performance too. Yeah. yeah. She's such yeah. a babe. Oh my gosh. Like she is giving 90s excellence through that mm. film. Like all of her costume choices are just like deeply 90s. Just everything about her. I was teleported back to a time and place. Well, I think that book is a bit more sex positive. Like, mm-hmm. Waiting to Exhale is very steeped in sort of like uh, like social mores of the 90s. Yes. It's wild. Like, every 
topic in the black community somehow like makes an appearance in the book like it's like <laughs> we're gonna talk about crack for uh, 10 pages we're gonna talk about gay people with aids for 10 pages we're gonna talk about single mothers like it's just like a who's who of articles written about black communities like it's very again not sure those were like those are like the think pieces of the 90s though yes. you know it's like you go to like a your favorite author like a terry mcmillan and the book is going to like have all those hot topics that like people exhaust you with in twitter conversations now or youtube videos you know it's like right. even the even the movie is like that you know because giancarlo esposito is like it's like gay in it you know and it's yes. like um <clears throat> Your daddy's gay. Your daddy's a faggot. I don't know. It's like Loretta <laughs> Devine's character is wild in that film. Yeah, the whole thing is crazy. So that's what we're discussing next week on the podcast. And Nicole Perkins, who's so awesome, she's my guest to discuss the book. Love so, Nicole. Love Nicole. So great. And we talked about her book a few weeks ago with her, which is also awesome. It's called Sometimes I Trip on How Happy We Could Be. And it's an incredible essay collection with like juicy, sexy writing. It's so good. If there's one thing Nicole's going to do, is talk about sex. That's right. So, yes, uh, I adore her, and I'm excited to read that book as well. Uh, and I'm excited for this episode. There's a lot going on True in enough. the news. Um, I think it would be fun for us to have a conversation about some of our favorite actors and their best and worst filmography. I got this from a recent uh, interview with Will Smith, where he had some interesting ideas about his best films and then also his worst film. So, Which, by the way, you re- you rarely hear a celebrity just ad- admit to. So we really have to seize on moments like this and <laughs> hopefully help them. <laughs> uh, and then we're going to get into more celebrity, you know, because I think recent profiles of like, Kumail Nanjiani and, you know, like recent reactions to um, John Mulaney uh, and his uh, new relationship with Olivia Munn have a lot of people discussing how we should be talking about celebrities in the media. Uh, You know, Gawker is back. You know, are we going to go back to the era of making fun of celebrities or are we nice to them now? So we're going to get into that conversation as well. And then Lewis and I have a lovely talk with the Sutton Foster. Uh, who could be my favorite two-time Tony winner, except, of course, I usually have a portrait of Sandy Dennis behind me. She still wins, but Sutton number two. You don't travel with her? Isn't that too bad? Yeah, that would be <laughs> nice if I had her in this um, chic hotel room, but alas, <laughs> I do not. I love that you're staying in a hotel in Chicago. Oh, isn't that naughty? Doesn't this sound like the beginning of a salacious thriller? <laughs> uh, the, Ash- the Ashley Judd of Keep It That's me, yes <laughs> Triple Jeopardy right here <laughs> uh, Is there a triple category? There's Final Jeopardy no. Final Jeopardy so oh, the sequel On the show to, Jeopardy? On the show, yeah. yes the, So the sequel to Double Jeopardy If they made one would be called Final Jeopardy Definitely. Certainly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And they'd be like, is this a legal term? And people would be like, no, it's just a Jeopardy term. But Right. That, the movie would end there, unfortunately. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's Ashley Judd on Jeopardy. Oh, that would be fun. And then there's but, a thriller. Okay. But since it's Final Jeopardy, it moves quickly. And then she goes back to doing like Dolphin Tale 3 or whatever she's up to. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> anyway. Um... We'll be right back with more Keith It. 
Celebrity culture is not what it was. Now that the rich and famous populate the same social media platforms as our friends and family, they seem a little less godlike and a little more just like us. So, Us Weekly was right. <laughs> always ahead of the curve. <laughs> so, Sociologically understanding magazine, always Us Weekly. So we thought it was time to dive into the big, quote-unquote, parasocial relationship discussion. Are we allowed to gossip about celebrities the way we used to? Should we be worried about hurting their feelings? Can we also break down what exactly a parasocial relationship with celebrities is? If I, if I comment on a celebrity, I don't think I'm having a parasocial relationship with the celebrity. If I'm in their DMs in all caps saying, how could you do this to me? Maybe that's a parasocial relationship. John Mulaney, um, I think, is one of the people who has, like, kick-started this conversation in general uh, because people enjoyed his comedy uh, and they enjoyed the fact that he was um, relatable and um, talked openly about uh, his addiction, um, talked openly about his relationship with his wife, uh, about how, you know, like, they didn't want to have kids. Uh, and he made fun of, like, other celebrities in his set. You know, was like, mm -hmm. I'm not like them, you know, like like real celebrities, like like, like they're assholes, etc. You know, and then he fell off the wagon and started a relationship with Olivia Munn and got her pregnant. Um, and now people are talking about him and he's like releasing exclusive photos of his relationship with Olivia, like them out having lunch together in People magazine. I'm like, all right. They, the, the paparazzi wasn't just snapping you at this restaurant. This was clearly sold to people. So now people want to talk about him like he's just one of those other celebrities. But fans of his were like, stay out of his business. Don't gossip about him, etc. And now we're in the middle of this insane conversation. Meanwhile, this whole thing smacks up the definitive celebrity moment of all time, which is Elizabeth Taylor getting Eddie Fisher from... Debbie Reynolds. So to these people, I say, know your history and leave me alone while I talk about John Mulaney. Are you saying that John Mulaney is Elizabeth Taylor in this situation? You know what? A little bit. Uh, <laughs> Violet-eyed violet John Mulaney. Okay, yes. fair. fair. I can't, I'm seeing a lot of similarities here. You know, they both love sack launches. Okay. <laughs> or Olivia Munn, I guess, would be Elizabeth Taylor in this context, which... At least mm. they both have dark hair sometimes. Okay, you know what? She does have a bit more of a Femme fatale. Uh, high yeah. profile past yeah. relationships too. So I guess she could be the Elizabeth Taylor. She she dated Aaron Rodgers. Mm -hmm. Jason Sudeikis, right? Yeah. No, wait. Yeah. Is that the yeah. same person? No, wait. That was Olivia That's the Wilde. Other Olivia Damn. Wilde, who okay, is now with Harry honest, Styles. Though. Let's be honest, though, <laughs> about the Olivias. They're impossible to tell apart, and good luck if you can. But at least Olivia Wilde is moving into a directorial career, yes. which now is separating herself. Because, like, normally they'd just be two faces you'd see in a magazine. And yes. now she's somebody I might see giving a thoughtful interview about what it's like behind the camera. Yes, yes. Um, anyway, back to John Mulaney Go uh, ahead. and celebrities. Um, yeah, it seems like people want to have their cake and eat it, too. You know? Particularly a celebrity. Particularly because... Yes, social media has sort of leveled a playing field in a sense where 
you can comment on celebrities' pictures. You can respond to their tweets. They'll respond to you sometimes, you know? Mm-hmm. They may fight with you or they may praise you or, you know, like they may retweet you. So, like, it feels like they're your friend in a way. Right. There's a recent uh, Slate uh, think piece by Lily Loofborough that really gets into this interestingly about how once upon a time when you gossiped about celebrities, it really was like you lived in a totally different universe from them. They would never see you commenting. And so it was basically like your own school cafeteria gossip while the faculty was off in some other room and you could, you know, convene and caucus that way. But now there's the assumption that if a conversation gets loud enough, the celebrity will get involved with it or hear about it or have to respond to it in an SNL skit or something. So uh, things are a lot different now. And I also think something that has complicated how we talk about celebrities is the advent of people whose entire celebrity is gossip in that if I'm talking about the Kardashians, you're hardly going to hear me say something like, I found Chloe's last two Oscar nominations unearned. You know, the <laughs> whole reason you talk about them is to talk about their relationships, to talk about what happened to them, talk about how things are going wrong for them or going well for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think because that's the primary uh, mode in which we talk about celebrities, the Kardashian mold, that that sort of has leaked over to everybody else too. And I think a little bit, like celebrities who in who have entirely become famous from social media also complicates the whole yeah. conversation because it's like, oh, this is not just a way to like talk about people and sort of engage with people and get a retweet, but it's also a way to create a whole identity out of thin air. And so it becomes like, am I just, you know, mentioning this person and they're mentioning me back or like, am I a celebrity now too, you know? Exactly. Yeah, I, I think psychosis is. is what you're talking about, Tracy. Yes. <laughs> talking about delusion. Yes, that's exactly right. <laughs> it is the advent of truly every single person, you know, thinking they're a celebrity yes. or at least not even just thinking they're a celebrity. But as the Slate article mentioned, um, you, people comment on your life now in the way that you used to like comment on celebrities uh, or the way that you used to, you know, like sort of gossip about like a friend that you have you know in another city you know you haven't seen them you hear the gossip on the phone maybe you saw them on a vacation etc now you see what people in your life are doing every day and you have an opinion on it and you can comment on their uh pictures or reply to their tweets and then you know there's like you start to realize like even if someone's not famous like you have your friends who like have more followers than other ones, you know? So there's, there's like all sorts of different things that make it feel like social media has changed what we talk about and how we talk about people. You know, when we would talk about a celebrity you don't like, it'd be like uh, my mother or something being like, I don't like Jennifer Aniston in the kitchen, you know? Right. And Jennifer's never going to hear that. Now, right. um, someone's mother, if they don't like Jennifer Aniston, will like comment on people's instagram or something say i don't like jennifer aniston and then jennifer aniston might see it and respond that sucks you know like like that that seems like nonsense to me and that is why i feel like most celebrities should just get off social media that's right emma stone's doing it right i do have to say i do I, i i think that like for me I'm extremely pro talking about celebrities. Like, I don't think you should tag them. And I don't think you should be like talking to them. But I'm super into talking about people behind their back. Like, that's one of my favorite hobbies. I hate Mm -hmm. the 
the tagging. That and that yeah. is the thing that social media invites. If there's a tweet about someone's movie and you didn't like it, for instance, then you have the annoying people who will respond to that tweet and at the celebrity or director or writer and it's why are you doing that why are you inviting them into the conversation it's this weird sort of um need to be like i'm the person who alerted them to the fact that people are talking about them so like now i can feel like i have a stronger connection to this celebrity or conversely it's like an asshole who's like i'm adding them because i want them to hear that they suck, you know? Or like, I want to like, start a fight. Right. right. I have friends who constantly do that, uh, and I call them out on it with, like, Real Housewives. You know, mm. if, 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 if you don't like a Real Housewife, if you don't like a reality star, like, that's fine. But, like, if you're writing, I think this is a horrible person, and I think that they suck, and then you at them, like, now you're being an asshole. Now you're being a jerk. This kind of makes me harken back to the old days of Twitter. Not that it was perfectly ideal ever, but I almost wish. Because it was I when I was that, on it. Because, okay, great. Um, precisely. <laughs> because in the old days, like, there used to be more just joke writing on Twitter. And I feel like jokes are the best way to deal with the urge to, one, want to talk about celebrities and two, want to talk about them publicly without resorting to abject positivity, which I actually also hate on Twitter and feel like is kind of is very widespread and super boring. Well, you know, the Slate article brought up a thing that I a thing that didn't really even cross my mind when we discussed the Chrissy Teigen uh, and Courtney Stodden situation. The fact that Chrissy wrote, you know, like horrible things to Courtney, yes? And then people dragged her for it because it was like, uh, that's not in your image, Chrissy, etc. We love you because you're nice, whatever. Um, it brought up that during the time when she made those tweets about Courtney, Gawker, like, basically had an article that was like, Courtney Stodden shouldn't stop existing. It ignores right. the fact that during that time, Everyone talked horribly about celebrities in really gross and brutal ways. No, I, dramaturgically, I want to go back to that time and explain it to everybody because I know we were all allegedly there, but it was like there was just a hardcore cynicism about, I, I think it's like advent of the Kardashians. It's like a new kind mm. of celebrity super saturation was occurring. And so mm -hmm. the reaction was a sort of immature hyper cynicism as if it was immediately earned because we all agreed we were so sick of hearing about these people, mm -hmm. you know? So the humor got to be way more caustic and way more and way meaner uh, just on average. And then we eventually came back. We, we came out of that eventually, but I mean, sometimes we did. Mm -hmm. But there's this assumption that it was just Perez Hilton and TMZ. Right. You know, the, the, whenever we talk about Britney, and I think it was the, I think it was celebrities like Britney and Lindsay seeing like the after effects of what that, like the media and paparazzi machine did to them that sort of like made us pull back and we're like, uh, maybe we don't want to be that cynical when discussing celebrities, but it was not just those places talking about celebrities. It was everywhere. You know, yeah. it's like not just Gawker, like any other other websites were like assholes to most celebrities, you know? But also in this regard, I, I hate when Perez Hilton comes up in, in this way because I also find him underrated because at the time, the way we talked about... There's a take. 
The, the, well, get ready. The, the tenor of celebrities, of talking about celebrities was so, and I don't mean to say this is bad or that I don't appreciate it sometimes, but the E red carpet, which is everybody looks stunning and we're a fan of everybody equally. And there was no actual connoisseurship of what these people do or like mm. individual appreciation. And part of what Perez Hilton did, I think was inject actual fandom, which is to say, Oh, I'm a Madonna super fan. And I know when Madonna's messing up and I, I actually am an authority on this. Now I know he also had a lot of humor that was just drawing cum on people's faces and stuff. But even that in, in a benign way was a new kind of irreverence in talking about celebrities. And I find it a little bit underrated, historically i understand it was all so mean but then i also hate like him having to go on ellen and explain being mean to ellen who meanwhile is being mean at other times so you know there what? you go it was fellini-esque if you will <laughs> okay wow girl now you write for slate okay <laughs> I <feel> like, <laughs> Lewis, i feel like to what you're saying though that perez hilton change of like fans being authorities on celebrities has is what's led us to where we are now definitely it's like the access and the feeling like if you have a take or you have insight to this person that you know them and now can tell them what to do like that's the thing about the way that people talk to celebrities now that i'm like deeply uncomfortable with is the telling people what to do like shut up you're a normal like what are you telling john mcclaney what to do like you're just an everyday regular person he's famous and he's probably like way more cutthroat and way more intense than you ever could imagine because you don't just you're not just funny and successful like you don't just get to be a superstar just because you're talented and I think people forget that and think like oh he's a nice guy who's funny and I can help him with his career it's like stop telling people what to do stop being an authority on people just enjoy the work mm -hmm. talk shit behind their back and leave them alone like that's he how it should cutthroat, be you know it's like I can't wait to see the being the Ricardo's version of being John Mulaney in the future. Oh, sure. <laughs> you know, <laughs> Javier, Bard Javier Bardem as John Mulaney, of course. Um, uh, Nicole Kidman as Olivia Munn. Yeah. Whoop. <laughs> I've heard stranger things, frankly. Yeah. Um, but Tracy, you're right. I mean, and and now we have fans who basically demand movie reboots go a certain way because they were such a fan of the original and stuff. And I mean, there's definitely a, a core of people out there who who think they're not just fans, but entitled to run the machine like based advisors. on the, know, giant babies. Yeah, right. Well, and it also then brings into the conversation how we discuss, you know, like bodies of celebrities too. You know, like we've mm -hmm. got to a point where we, you know, like have a conversation about how we discuss women's bodies, you know, but then there's male bodies, you know, there's the recent profile of um, Kumail Nanjiani that um, E. Alex um, Young wrote and, um, it is, you know, it discusses how, like, people have, like, opinions about his body now because he got his, like, super soldier on to be in a Marvel movie, you know? And um, there's this sort of thing of, like, do you talk about this? Do you not talk about it, you know? Yeah. I feel like didn't also Jonah Hill, he's been coming out recently being like, stop yeah. talking about my body. Like, stop being right. weird. I get Jonah's because Jonah is, like, Jonah is almost sort of, like, um, the thing that, like, uh, Lizzo or, like, sort of other, like, um, fat people in the media have said um, they want conversations around them to not revolve around how, like, you know, like, how brave they are just for, like, bearing their body in public. The sure. conversations around Jonah is always, like, uh, like, love him, just being himself, surfing, <laughs> etc. Like, and it's like, he's just surfing. 
Right. Leave them alone. It's so patronizing. It's not brave. Yes, it's it's very patronizing. It's not brave that he existed, that he didn't shoot himself in the head because someone (laughs) might talk about his body. I think what's interesting, though, when we talk about bodies is like that Jonah Hill or Camille Nanjani and like these men are somehow leading this conversation, even though 99% of it is happening to like women and queer, queer celebrities. And it's like these straight guys are the ones who are really like trailblazing. And it's such a double standard because then you have Adele. People are obsessed with her body, like cannot stop talking about it. But for some reason, Camille is like the leader of this conversation, which I find to be really interesting and obviously a little ass backwards yeah well i will say about him though i do feel like a part of it is a lack of literacy about how a male body gets completely jacked like there's just a general like suspicion that tends to coat conversations about this you know but like because the truth of the matter is i honestly don't know who's on steroids like i don't know who's like treating their bodies certain way like because i believe you can just get jacked by working out and having like disney give you the 165 sacred steps to a great body or whatever right so i feel like people are also just mystified too and also it goes along with this conversation that we were talking about with john mulaney of well he used to be a normal and mm-hmm. now he's done something to graduate into this like super celebrity status where he resembles you know the adonises of yore mm-hmm. i mean you don't get oscar nominations and then stay normal okay <laughs> I'm sorry. It's true. I'm sorry. We're talking about Ruth Nega. I'm talking about- <laughs> <laughs> that bitch just ate the same Ruth Nega she used to be. <laughs> when she was in Ad Astra, I was like, I don't know her anymore. Okay, and now she's walking around passing. Passing uh-huh. for what? <laughs> passing for what? <laughs> uh, well, we're not going to solve it here, but I think that we have clearly come out on the side of we're still going to talk about celebrities. Imagine we didn't make fun of celebrities on this show. What would we talk about? I, I simply wouldn't have a voice. <laughs> and I wouldn't listen every week, let's be honest. Be like, this podcast is so boring. Why it would be it would just be like two hours of keep it up. That's what the show would be. Wow. Tracy, our hardest drag to date. Yeah. <laughs> I think the solution is you gotta keep it light stay out of celebrities mentions keep it to text threads most of the time that's right but if you're going to post in public keep it productive somehow you can Uh you can do this by add a little joke a little irreverence don't encourage the the worst people on twitter to respond to you i don't know so (laughs) yeah um yeah we're gonna continue to be pro um mocking celebrities uh because Mm -hmm. i think i honestly there's there's enough of a breed of podcast now that is truly just nice to every celebrity everything's great a bore there are two things i i instinctively don't trust people who only stand one thing like their whole identity is wrapped up in lady gaga or whatever and people who stand everything yeah you got to be somewhere in between you have to be discerning you have to hate some things that's how like your personality can't be positivity i'm sorry it's not a that's that's when you end up being nice and as the witch said it does not mean you're good or kind you're just nice Mm -hmm. dang Yes. Sondheim, look it up. (laughs) Anyway, uh, speaking of Sondheim and theater, coming up next, Lewis and I uh, get into a conversation with Sutton Foster. We'll be right back with that and more Tracy Thomas a bit later. Keep It is brought to you by Barefoot Dreams. 
Lewis. Yes. When you see footprints in the sand, that was when I carried you in my barefoot dreams robe. Now, is that a Leona Lewis song? <laughs> no. Uh, if you want to bring coziness into your life, you turn to Barefoot Dreams, especially now as the brand is celebrating their 30th anniversary. With those 30 years of coziness, Barefoot Dreams celebrates being the originators of everyone's favorite luxe home blanket. And while many have attempted to duplicate their blankets, robes, and more, Barefoot Dreams' fabrication and quality cannot be replicated, so don't believe the dupes. Girl, this blanket is it. I effing love this blanket. I'm thinking about it right now, and I want to jump in my bed, which is sponsored by something that we'll do another ad for momentarily. Get ready. There's a reason why Barefoot Dreams has been on Oprah's favorite things list six times. Jesus, get a life, Oprah. My God. (laughs) Dressing head to toe in Barefoot Dreams is the key to comfort as their collection of ultra-soft robes, loungewear, and accessories are made with premium materials. Their products make the perfect gifts, too. Uh, I throw this thing on. I wear it like a shawl. I look exactly like Ellen Burstyn. And <laughs> I am the coziest a human being can be. Because by the way, it's still that time in Los Angeles where it's like pretty mild outside and then your apartment is cold. I can't explain mm. it. I don't know things like basic science. For Keep It listeners, you can get 15% off your first purchase at barefootdreams.com with the code KEEPIT15. Don't miss out on Barefoot Dreams soft, soothing fabrics that will bring luxury to your life. Our guest today is what you might call a Broadway legend, a two-time Tony and Drama Desk Award winner. She soon headed back to Broadway to star opposite Hugh Jackman in The Music Man. But here she is as a writer with a new memoir, Hooked, How Crafting Saved My Life. Please welcome the iconic Sun Foster. Hey, thank you. <laughs> you are on a short list of... um performers that our group of friends who are um, all sort of came from theater or still work in like film and TV now, um, we are constantly watching your performances. Constantly. Like um, before we go out, we have to watch the Anything Goes. We have to watch the Thoroughly yeah, gotta watch the Anything it. Goes. We gotta watch, usually it's the Anything Goes rehearsal. Yeah. Which is, which is, I don't, I don't even know how you were breathing after that. Well, For people who don't know, yeah, uh, there's there's the anything goes Tony's performance, but there's also a video up of you doing it in rehearsal, which is just fantastic. What was crazy about that was um, I was just we were, I was just coming off of I, I had bronchitis and this okay this is pre COVID this is ten years ago so I was like I had bronchitis I was but was still rehearsing of course and like infecting everybody <laughs> and. Um, and so I was still rehearsing, but I had never, I, I'd like completely like lost my voice, was all congested um, and couldn't, I had never actually sung the full song or done like the ending yet. And the very first time I ever did it was that day because it was our press day. And that was the very first time I had actually done it. So I was, you can sort of see if you watch, you can just sort of see the panic terror that's like behind my eyes of like I don't know if I'm gonna be able to do this or not and I was taking this um this antibiotic which has like a side effect that can make your um I can't believe I'm telling this that it can make your uh it can like do something to your tendons and so I I finished the tap number and then I like could barely walk 
afterwards. And I was just going around wow. to like do all my interviews and I was like hobbling around because everything was kind of in disarray. But yeah, but th- you can't see that really from the video. But yeah, there was, there was no, a lot it, it, going it on. Just looks, it just looks spectacular. There was a lot going on. So. <laughs> <laughs> but that actually brings me to the topic of this book, which you talk about crochet and crafting as de-stressing your life. And it, among Broadway performers, there must be a ton of people doing crafts like this all the time, since I feel like there are just myriad stressors uh, in your everyday life as a performer. You would think. I mean, I, I have definitely come across other um, knitters and crafters and crocheters in the theater. Um, but oddly, it's funny, but it seems more rare. But for, for me, and what I'm hoping maybe this book will do too, it's like, for me, it, it, it's become, it became like my go-to. Like I'm, I'm constantly in between scenes, even during anything goes, I, I would, I had projects. I would, I would come off playing Reno, come back to my dressing room, you know, crochet and be working on something. But it was, um, it was like a way to sort of keep me, um, I don't know, like, I could sort of even the pressures of performing a live show. It was like this way of sort of decompressing for a, a hot second before I had to go back out on stage. Um, mm. So yeah, I'm, I'm always, I always have, I always had something, especially now when I feel like we're so attached to our phones, you know? And, um, and I try to stay off my phone, like during a show. Uh, I just got back from London. I, I did anything goes over there in, in the West End. Mm. So I just, just finished a, a run of Reno again, 10 years later. And, um, but I, I was crocheting the whole time. So uh, most of the suitcases I brought back from London were just full of yarn. <laughs> so, it's just <laughs> yarn. so yeah, it's, it's a, uh, it's a thing. It's a thing, but, but it helped me like navigate, you know, even cause my family had to come back. Um, my family was with me, my husband and my daughter were with me for about three months, but then, um, they ca- they came back early so my daughter could start school and even just like missing them I I did I was very prolific I tend to um, I tend to be very uh, prolific when I'm I'm most stressed out so <laughs> you can sort of look back <laughs> at my life and you're like what were you going through then you know and I'm like oh god you know the things that the things that I've made well I mean you discussed uh, a bit how you know. Um... I think this came from, you know, like the stresses of, you know, performing and dealing with the other people, you know, who you were performing with. And I have to imagine, you know, your big debut that we know you for, uh, Thoroughly Modern Millie, had to be one of the most because you're you're going into a lead role um, when you had just been in the chorus before. Yes, that was a pretty um, intense time and 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 also sort of i had never really and you know there's i had done tours before but touring and then suddenly in my mind broadway was just this Mm -hmm. major thing and i um yeah i sort of it was millie was an interesting time because obviously it was very successful and 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 but i was also in a very kind of um, I was almost, de- you know, depressed and freaked out off stage. I, I, I didn't know how to handle the doing eight shows a week and and the pressures of leading a company. Um, how to, I I felt like my entire identity was wrapped up in playing Millie, and um, uh, I, I needed to find something else creative, something 
else that mattered in my life other than just doing that show. And, um, and that was really when I was doing a lot of drawing. Um, my, my boyfriend at the time gave me a drawing pad and some colored pencils. And I, I, I used to doodle and, and do like very simple drawings. And he's like, he's like, I think you could, this might be very therapeutic for you. And, and it, and it ended up becoming like this go-to thing. I would do it in between shows. I would do it after shows. And it was something where, um, it was just this creative outlet that helped create balance for me and, and something else that bring me, that brought me joy and something that I had sort of creative control over. And that's sort of how I feel about all my little projects. Cause so often I think what we do as, as actors or performers or creatives too, we are waiting for someone to either, we're waiting for the phone to ring, waiting for someone to give us permission to like do what we do or um, create something for us. And I think it's like having sort of creative ownership of, um, you know, I'm like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make this and it's on my own time and nobody's Given, given me notes about it you know it's like it's my own thing <laughs> and there's something very like um empowering about that and and and, and also it's maybe things that don't have like an agenda maybe they're just just for you or maybe they're just for your friend or you know it's like a gift that you uh, something that you're not like oh I, I need to sell this or it has to be you know it has to win a prize or something it's it's just something creative that that um is just for you you know, that's so impressive, though, because I don't think uh, just speaking for myself, like if I'm stressed, I almost don't know how to be productive in any way. And so it feels like you keep finding ways to be productive, even when you're stymied in other ways. Has that always been the case for you? Even growing up, could you find turn find ways to turn, you know, stress and agitation outward into something else? Or was that something you learned as an adult? Hmm. Um, that's so interesting. I'm not I'm, I don't I don't know. I mean, I, I sort of started doing it when I was in my late teens, like 19. So, but as far as earlier than that, I'm not, I'm not sure if I was prolific in that way, but, um, but, it, but, but around 19 is when I started doing cross stitching and, and things, um, using different tools, you know, they're like, you know, we all have tools of how we sort of handle things. And, and for me, that was like a, a way that, a tool that I could use that could sort of help me navigate social pressures or anxieties or, um, you know, when, when the mind is racing, you know, we have lots of choices of how we deal with things. And so I, yeah, I, I'm not quite sure where that came from that, that, that I decided to choose like that choice as opposed to, I mean, there are lots of negative choices that we can make too, but, um, you know, you know, <laughs> and not saying that I'm, haven't done that as well, but it's, it's, um, but I am, I, I am proud that like some of my, during some of my darkest times, um, I've made, you know, beautiful things. Like even this, that blanket back there, the one in the, in the corner with the dog, near the dog, that blanket was made, that's the mm -hmm. divorce blanket. So <laughs> that's, the, that's the blanket I made when I was going through my divorce. And it's, it's so gorgeous. It's so beautiful. And I'm like, wow, yeah. but it represents so much, you know, and like it represents a really hard time. It represents, I mean, I look at it now and I'm like, wow, like it's so intricate and, and hours and hours and hours went into that. But that was how I, you know, and, and, and in many ways, I, and I'm proud that I threw something really painful and 
and sad and heartbreaking, something beautiful came out of it. You're like, oh, that's very cool, you know? I love that. And also additionally, not only is it like look great or whatever, but the, the amount of detail sort of matches the what I would assume is the amount of stress. So in a way, it's an articulating yeah. of a kind of stress too. Yeah. It's also like, there's something about for me, for even with drawing too and crochet and cross-stitching, it's a, it's a, it's a repetitive um, motion. So you're doing like, often you're, you'll do the same stitch over and over and over again. It's almost like counting rose, rose, rosary beads or, um, so you're, it's this, and with each stitch, you're kind of working through something and, and there's something too about like the progress, being able to see progress, physically see progress. And maybe even you don't mentally or physically are aware of it, but then you look down and you go, Oh, Oh, I, time is moving forward. Progress is being made. It might not feel that way, but I've just made 20, 20 flowers, you know, or whatever it is you're making. And you're like, okay. And, and and I love the idea of making something out of nothing. I mean, it's like any creative process. It's a, it's this book. The book did not exist. And like, we created it. It's like, uh, or, you know, like uh, anything that's just blank or balls of yarn that suddenly become a sweater or, uh, you know, a washcloth or a jar cozy or whatever it is. You know, there's something really, really beautiful about being able to create a musical that's nothing that you know there's something so amazing about about the, that that whole creative process yeah speaking of those uh speaking of that creative process and sort of dealing with um you know being thrust into sort of um you know um running a company right you know like you're the head of a company and like millie like did you ever i know that um your brother was on uh was in urinetown and that was around like a year before Billy, did you get to overlap with him at any point when you were both on Broadway? And was that helpful to you? Were you was he able to like impart wisdom to you in a way that helped? I wish I had. My brother and I are he's six, five and a half years older, and mm-hmm. we. It's funny because I I I wish I had thought to ask for his advice. I don't think I did. You know. Maybe I was so mm-hmm. caught up in my own turmoil, you know, or my own, mm-hmm. <laughs> or maybe I thought I could handle it all on my own. Um, but you're in town and Millie were on at the same time. Uh, we, so it was very mm-hmm. cool because we were, and then we were both nominated for the Tony. So at the Tony Awards, my mm-hmm. brother, we both performed. It was, it was you know, you're, you're two kids from, we were born in a small town in Georgia and then lived in, you know, suburbs in Michigan. And, you know, here we are both on Broadway and performing at the Tony Awards at the same time. It was, it was, it was beyond, but um, yeah, I, I mean, I always looked up to my brother. I always, I've always, I've always sort of chased after him, you know? Um, But I, yeah, I think I was probably just too, um, I was probably too stuck in my own that I, I didn't even know, know how to ask for help. I know that you mentioned that you did years later talk to Patty Lapone about doing Reno. 
um, because you said that that was a difficult role for you. Um, anything goes. You felt like you yeah. couldn't step into that. Uh, and how how was she helpful? Because I feel hearing that story reminds me a bit of how she discussed how it took her forever to get um, Avita. Oh, wow. That's so funny. I always think of Patty Lapone just being perfect <laughs> out of the gate, you know? <laughs> like, Patty Lapone struggles? What? what is that? Um, but she, she was amazing to talk to. Like, we... Um, I, I talked to her at, at way after the fact of, of Reno. We, 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 I talked to her um, in, in when I was writing this book. Um, but she, she was sort of mm. my like. Uh, Patty was sort of my. Um, I was so intimidated when I approached um, when I was doing Reno because Patty Lapone had played her, because Ethel Merman had played her. Um, these amazing powerhouse mm. women, and I thought, oh my god, how am I gonna? I can't, how am I going to sort of navigate this? And in many ways, I think I had to just pretend like it was a brand new musical that had never been done and, <laughs> and just try to find my own way with Reno. Um, because, but, but one of the things that Patty exudes that I admire so much is she has a confidence and she's unapologetic. And those were the things I was trying desperately to sort of find in my Reno, this unapologetic, someone who's just like, this is who I am and I am here and take her, take it all, take it or leave it, you know? And that's something that I just think Patty, in, in, uh, that's just who she is. But, um, but then that was really hard for me because I come from this very, uh, uh, you know, Southern, um, Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. You know, very. I'm, I'm sorry for everything. Very apologetic. Very like, don't want to take up any. You know, don't want to claim space. Don't want to get in the way. Um, and so it was. That's why Reno was so hard for me. I had because I thought, oh my god, I'm gonna come out. You know, claim space. I'm gonna be struck by lightning. You know, like the, the like I, I'm, <laughs> like my dad. You know, my my mom was always like, stay humble remember where you came from you know and it was like how do you play this character and then I sort of had to find Reno's humility in a way although that's not necessarily one of the first words you would think to describe Reno you you think of her as brazen and brassy and bold but I was like okay well what is her underbelly and like once I started to discover her underbelly then I could figure out I knew how to play her but I had to find her mm -hmm. humility her heart or weakness, and then I could cover it up with all of this, you know, brass. Mm -hmm. So, uh, speaking of getting into a character, you were originally supposed to start rehearsals for The Music Man a long time ago, and then this business occurred with, you know, disease, etc. And now you're about to be at it again. What's it been like to have had the music with you. I mean, obviously you've grown up knowing the music man, uh, you know, but can sit here. We could talk about Shirley Jones all day, whatever. But you've had an extra year and a half to, I guess, think about the music man. Has that been fun at all? You know? I've been using the think method, you see. Um, I've, been doing a lot of, I have been doing a lot of thinking about it. And again, it's sort of like Reno where, I mean, one of the reasons I said yes to the music man was because I thought, Initially, when they asked me to do it, I went, really? I went, huh, interesting. I was like, that's, I would think of 
maybe 10 other people that before you would get to me, you know? And, but then I thought, huh, maybe that's interesting. Maybe there's opportunity there to find something new. And um, it's been really interesting. I think again, sort of like what my approach with Reno and anything goes, it's like, I kind of need to think of this and heading into music man as if it's never been done before. There's so many unbelievable people who have played Marion, Shirley Jones, and Barbara Cook, and you know, you you go uh, Rebecca Luker, you know, I and I immediately am like, ah, like I can't, that, that, I don't know how to do that, you know. So I, <laughs> I'm immediately sort of paralyzed by that, and then I have to go, okay, well, what can Sutton Foster offer to this production? So I'm trying to, you know, navigate and find my way with it. But I think again, I have to just blaze ahead as if it's a brand new show, and um, and honor those obviously who've come before, but then, and then, but, but then bring my own, my own thing to it. Very excited for that. Just very excited to see, you know, like feels like maybe the least brassiest character you've played. I'm excited. Um, so. <laughs> yeah. But the thing about Marion too, is that Marion's a badass. Like she really is. Mm-hmm. Like she's singular in that town. Like she's ahead of her time. She might be a little more, you know, she's definitely more um, buttoned up and, um, conservative, but she's ten years, fifteen years ahead than of, of anyone in that in that town, and she has a past. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like she's got, like, mm-hmm. she's got some naughty bits. So I'm I'm excited. Yeah, she wasn't just a librarian. Yeah, no, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think. Um, lastly, before you go, I mean, I'd be remiss if I didn't also bring up, you know, like you did multiple years of younger. And that is such a different beast than theater. Uh, and, you know, as, as I said before the interview, you know, I know Darren and my friend Grant worked on it. Yeah. And, um, you know, Joe, Joe as well. And now I've met Don Roos. So such oh, an amazing, amazing so human being. Amazing human being. What is that like? Um, as a, What was that like as opposed to theater? What kind of different muscle did it open up for you? Because you're originating this role. But then I have to think that throughout six years of it, you're also learning different things and the writers are learning things from you yeah. and, it's, and it's more alive um, even than a new play might be. It was really exciting to evolve with a character as well. So that was a, a new experience because in a show, you you just redo the same journey. You know? <laughs> it's just, you have this amazing opportunity to like mine a character and really get into all the corners and stuff. But with Liza and Younger, it was really fascinating to kind of go on this journey with her. And I think throughout the journey of Younger, Liza discovered sort of the best version of herself. And in many ways, I think I was on a similar journey because the last seven years, I met my husband, I adopted my daughter, I became a mom. I, I feel like I've sort of emerged into like the best version of myself. And so Liza and I were on this like same kind of journey together which was really special that will always mark that time that will always sort of be this like perfect little chapter um but I I love your question about like what muscle did it um did it work out because there's not a lot of time I mean there's tons of time on tv but you it moves at such a pace and the train moves moves very fast and you have to be um and every day is something new a new scene a new challenge so the muscle that I was really excited to sort of exercise was this, um, you have to kind of, you have to leap. 
You have to make strong choices. You have to be very spontaneous. You have to, there's no real time to be like, oh, I'm scared or I don't want to do it or hit it. Because there's like 15 people who are like, will you just fucking say the line? You know, so you're just like, go, go, go. So, you know, it's like, you can't really get in the way. You have to like, go, go, go. So it's kind of, I really appreciated that. So I'm like excited to bring that back to theater because I feel like I'm like, all right, let's go, let's go. Like I'm ready to just like leap in with a, with a, um, assertiveness that I don't know if I had before I did TV. Um, and like a real, like there is a, there was a sense too, of just kind of, um, finding it took, it took me a while to be like really comfortable, you know, on in front of a camera and on, and on a TV set. But then um, after a while, you just develop this ease uh, and it just becomes, so I'm excited. I hope I can bring that to back to the stage too. I mean, I, I mean, thank you, first of all, so much for being here. But too, I just want to say like, obviously you, you are not just a legend. You, you are such an exciting and specific talent that I even just like thinking about what we will get from you one day. Like I personally hope I'm sitting and watching a Sutton Foster Victor Victoria sometime. So Ow! yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This is, these are good ideas. I like this. Start working on that okay. note, Majaz. Yeah, right. Yeah. Now, all right. Yeah, okay. Cool. <laughs> uh, thank you so much for being here. This is really wonderful. Thank you. Thank you both. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. In a recent GQ profile, Will Smith, the Fresh Prince himself. Yes, I'm familiar. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking either say the Fresh Prince himself or um, sometimes guest on Red Table Talk. Ooh. Right, where, where he's like arms folded and worried. Yeah, nodding, nodding along. Please don't talk about our marriage again, Jada. <laughs> <laughs> Named his worst film and the two tied for his best. Unfortunately, it revealed to me that Will Smith has no taste. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Mm-hmm. 100%. Because his worst film and the thorn in his side is Wild Wild West. A fine song. A great song. How I dare ca- you? I, actually, it is a bad movie, but um, the song, I think, cancels out a lot of the badness. Also, it's just it's just wacky. You know? Yeah. It's well, wacky. that's the movie where famously John Peters, who now is a character in the new Paul Thomas Anderson movie played by Bradley Cooper, demanded that the final boss or whatever be a giant mechanical spider since he was obsessed with spiders and mm. talking about how strong they were. And so that's why at the end of this show, which is based off an old television Western, they're facing off against this erector set spider. Yeah. You know what? And the mechanical spider is not even the worst part of the film. <laughs> right. I can imagine why he named it his, we'll, we'll get into this. I can imagine why he named it his worst film though, because I can imagine that for celebrity, their worst film is probably like either they know unequivocally that it is awful or they probably just had a really shitty time making it. That's true. Also, I think it's just the sense of he was on such a hot streak at the time that when it came to that movie, it was like the 
and oops moment that everybody noticed. It's a failure that the most people noticed. Yes. Mm. And so his best films, according to him, are The Pursuit of Happiness and Men in Black. And baby, nope. The Pursuit of Happiness <laughs> is nowhere on anybody's list of anything watchable, let alone good. Not, nothing is, I'm not pursuing, pursuing that and it's certainly not making me happy. No. Um, uh, his best movie, oh, you know what I'm going to say, Ira. Oh, what is it? Six Degrees of Separation. Okay. Okay. I, I can, Give, where's I can the see conversation that. about that performance? Where's the conversation about gay Will Smith? That's what I want to know. Because he Wasn't really he nailed embarrassed it. of that. Wasn't there all this stuff that well, came out after the fact where he was like weird, feeling weird about like kissing a man? It's like, well, yeah. are you an actor com- or what the fuck? <laughs> the conversation about gay Will Smith is happening on Black Twitter every day, Louis. <laughs> Sorry, I'm dismissing it. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll mention you so you can find it. <laughs> uh, I would actually say that for me, his best film may be a little controversial. Here we go. Bad Boys 2. Uh, in what way? Bad Boys, Bad Boys 2 is an iconic film. Period. In what way? Iconic would mean I remember it, right? Go ahead. Okay, well, you know what? Just because you don't like the Bad Boys franchise, Lewis, don't, don't come up in here talking about <laughs> shit when you don't know what we're talking about. Tracy, back me up. Okay, it's good, but my favorite will I have two favorite Will Smiths. Can okay. I do it? Okay. Yes. One will give you a glimpse into who I am, which mm. is Hitch. Iconic right. film. One so of the last rom like true rom coms of like gigantic size. A great rom com. And then the other one, for so many reasons, but mostly for his offspring in the film, Independence Day. Great film. Great film. Man, I remember when just that was the most inescapable movie of all time. Like that weekend, that holiday weekend, you absolutely had to see it. There was no such thing as not seeing it. Like it was Titanic sized. Yes. Yeah. I love Independence Day. And that's a much better final villain. You know, the alien situation is better than the spider situation. Mm-hmm. Underrated classic, Jersey Girl. I was going to say Enemy of the State <laughs> was also okay. No. I was I was not being serious. You were being okay. serious, Lewis. Yes, right. Well, as you know, yeah. <laughs> I got my him- doctorate in this subject, so you forgive me. He plays himself in the uh, J-Lo um, Ben Affleck film, Jersey Girl. Oh, um, right. I totally forgot that. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I, I think Enemy of the State is a good one, too. You know, but um, Pursuit of Happiness, I have a lot of questions. Yeah. It's just... I. I, I I understand he was nominated for that, right? That mm-hmm. and Ali are his nominations. Um, yeah, I'm I, just going to tout Six Degrees of Separation for a second. First of all, Stockard Channing in that movie, also nominated. Will Smith was not nominated. Stockard was nominated. The, the fast-talking, rich, like slightly sophisticated, mostly Karen-ish character there, expertly done just one of my favorite nominations of that decade i really think people should go back and investigate it and donald sutherland who never nominated once famously so good at it Mm, he's never been nominated that's like the most famous oscar omission i think now of all time not even when he was president snow in hunger games it does seem crazy yes not not even in 92 when he was um merrick in buffy the vampire slayer I know. It does seem unfortunate. Uh, uh, Pride and Prejudice, uh, Ordinary People, Clute, n- no nominations. Wow. You know what? Tonight, the Academy, we ride. <laughs> <laughs> and we will have our vengeance. <laughs> um, Kiefer hasn't been nominated before, has he? 
No, no, no. Okay. M- much at as I they, am still afraid did... of him and stand by me. <laughs> well, at least they did disrespect his daddy like that. Can you imagine? Right. Oh, that would be amazing. We nominated you for Flatliners, Kiefer. <laughs> <laughs> Flatliners has some stands out there. No, wait, we're going to talk about our favorite actors and, and their best and worst, right? Tracy, yes. you better yes. lead us off. Who's your favorite? Okay, I yes. my favorite... Well, my favorite I went with was Leonardo DiCaprio. Okay. Interesting. I'm surprised. Yes. Why, why are you surprised? I, it just... You, you, don't, you don't seem like... Um, you know, a, a straight dude I went to high school with. I don't know. Or Hunter Harris. Yeah. <laughs> I was a young girl in the 90s. So yeah. he was sort of a thing, a sort of a vibe. And, you know, famously, Ira and I attended the same university. I went to NYU for undergrad for theater. Um, oh, my God. Tish? That's, that's right, Boo. You know it. I didn't even bring it up this time. I did it for you. I wanted to make sure yeah. Lewis got a little upset. So, Tracy's an enabler. I, you know yeah. what? No <laughs> one, Listen, no one wins in their drinking game this week. Okay? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Look, if you're a Bobcat, you're Bobcat for life. You got to call us out. We're, we're a mafia. Bobcat mafia. Famously, um, Bobcat Goldwaith will be a Bobcat for the rest of his life. So that right. is true. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I picked Leonardo DiCaprio also because I don't have a favorite actor i don't it was hard for me i gotta be honest we get Uh, it you read books yeah (laughs) i read books i'm smart that's it that's my bag um okay but so i picked for my least favorite leonardo DiCaprio, and this is controversial and really i don't care but the revenant a bore oh interesting i know he won an oscar for it but to me i'm like you took everything that's good about Leonardo DiCaprio away. He's like not particularly hot. He's not particularly charming. He's freezing. I'm freezing watching. Like it it just, it's a no for me. Um, I think also with that movie, it's the least interesting of his nominations too, yeah. where he shows many more shades in the other films. And in this one, it was just, he was protagonist who goes through things. Often this happens with the Oscars where I feel like people are nominating the gruesomeness of the role as opposed to what the actor is doing. Yeah. I mean, he just looked cold the whole time. Like he wore a bear. Congratulations. But like, do people think he really actually killed a bear and skinned it and wore it? Like he's acting. Yes, they do. Yeah, right. A little bit they do. So I think actually, I think he thinks he did. I think I think that's fair. <laughs> he does not f- think it was a film. <laughs> He's a woodsman. Um, I think that my favorite Leonardo DiCaprio. Also, I'm sure people are going to hate this, but whatever. Romeo and Juliet. Mm. Okay. Well, that's certainly when we were like, we have to keep paying attention to this man. I just think, as a person who loves books and was a theater major and loves Shakespeare, I think it's hard to do Shakespeare well. And I feel like people really fell in love with that character in a way that like he became a human. And that part is really not the lead. Juliet is really the lead. And he like, I felt like you loved him. He made you feel bad when he cried at the end so hard. He cried so hard. (laughs) He's definitely better than um, the actor in the, uh, Zeffirelli, Romeo, uh, Leonard, Leonard Whiting is his name. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, he, he, he really added a uh, angst. Yeah, to it. and he wore that that costume so good that uh, uh, coat of arms at the ha- Halloween party or whatever. Mm-hmm. You bad. know, I didn't see that film until the pandemic. Actually, <gasps> what uh, did you and, think? How did it? Age? And I don't like. And I don't like it. Ooh, I think God. I've come to the point where I do not like Baz Luhrmann as a director. I oh. hate Baz Luhrmann as a director, but I do think Romeo and Juliet had a little bit of a an edge to it that later uh, 
uh, Baz Luhrmann lacks. I think uh, it's one of those movies, if you see it in 1996 or whatever, when I saw it as like a fifth grader. Of course. Like, it's like one of those, same with like Waiting to Exhale. If you saw that movie in the 90s, it's your fave. If you see it in 2021, it is not your favorite anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, what would you say, Lewis, about Leo? My favorite Leo performance, because something about his leading performances that I don't like is he gets to be crazy, but then we're like rooting for him. Like there's some weird built in sympathy that I don't always have for his characters. Mm. A movie where he gets to just be a complete dick. Horrible. Django Unchained is my favorite. That uh, was my second. Leonardo uh, performance. Okay. You know what? Scary. He is scary in that movie. And then when he says the white cake. Yes. (laughs) So good. You know what? I would actually agree, but it's tied with my favorite film of his, which is Gangs of New York. Mm. I'm, oh, yeah. a, gang, I'm your, a Gangs of New York take. apologist. I yeah. love that film. It's uh, just one of those movies that's out there, like, for me, like, the curious case of Benjamin Button that a ton of people did see, but we just don't ever talk about it anymore. I remember being, um, I remember being mocked in school. Oh, yeah, I bet. In 2002 when it came out for liking it. You were one of those people that like Vanilla Sky too. I can read right through you. I Whatever. love Vanilla Sky. <laughs> See, this is what this is what our listeners are subjected to. People who like <laughs> Vanilla Sky. <laughs> Worse for me. Well, I haven't seen Jay Edgar, so. Oh, I have. I can tell. I can confirm it's uh, not only bad, but because nothing about Jay Edgar's biography is actually confirmed regarding like the cross dressing, etc. It feels very tentative about exploring the quote unquote darker parts of Jay Edgar's life. So it's like, why are we even making this? You you, you can't confirm any of this. So. Yeah. Uh, so I would say Blood Diamond. Mm. Mm. Yeah. No I disrespect like, to Jimon. I like you know, him in that. Well, I mean, it does have that icon- <laughs> that iconic line. Um, in a in America, you're all about the bling bling. Over here, it's more about the bang bang. <laughs> Thank you, Jesse J. In his yeah. in a South African accent. That accent was a trip. Uh, you know, also you, we all know that I don't like Revolutionary Road. I find it dry. It's a and failure. I find it it's a failure. Yeah. yeah. Oh wait, another lo- one that's horrible is The Beach. Do you remember that movie that he oh. did when he was like young and famous, and they were like, "This is gonna be a great thriller," and it was a uh, dud. There's something uh, wrong with The Beach. Yes. Um, well, I mean, I, oh, I remember the one moment we decided Tilda Swinton should star in like A-list thrillers, as opposed to weird, weird movies where she speaks three languages, which is what she should be doing. Yeah. Uh, Alex Garland's book is much better. The, oh, uh, the Beach. Book. Yeah. Yeah. The Beach is a book, Tracy. I didn't know, I, didn't know oh. well, I haven't read every book, Ira. Okay. Well, uh, no. The library we... tables are turned. Yeah. <laughs> uh, when Zadie Smith was on the show and Aida and I um, interviewed her, uh, she had lovely stories to tell about Alex Garland, uh, but basically how about how to, like, he did The Beach, uh, and then, like, it was made into a film, uh, and then I guess he decided, you know, like, I'm gonna make the movies myself, you know, and so now he does, like, you know, like, screenplay for 28 Days Later, you know, and then, you know, he's got his, um, Annihilation and Ex Machina, you know, which was his directorial debut, but yeah, I think, um, he was like, I can do this better than Danny Boyle. Mm. 
In that Which case, most he was people probably can. correct. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, rude. I do hate Steve Jobs. Um, Ira, who's your favorite person? Oh, it's Angelina Jolie, right? Uh, you know. You know it's my um, white woman of color, Angelina okay. Jolie. Who, I, I'm, I'm curious what the answers to this are because I'm not even sure what I would pick. Before I even get into her films, uh, can we talk about how great she looked at the Eternals premiere? Oh my god! Oh yeah, and she had that chin jewelry that was so strange. But she has her adult-looking children with her. I will all be dead soon. Sorry. Yeah, and her daughter wearing her 2014 Oscars dress was beautiful. Also, I'm sorry. uh, Here we are doing the the talking about celebrities the way we've been told not to really do it. Man, the kids that are their biological kids look exactly like the both of them, Brad and Angelina. I don't know why that's. I, I feel like my own aunt reading a People magazine as I say this, but anyway. <laughs> um, all right. So worst film that Angelina Jolie is in. You know what? Sky Captain in the World of Tomorrow. It is too bad because the movie looks amazing when you it see like, the preview beautiful. of it. It looks beautiful. Yeah. But it is truly an unpleasant film experience. You know, one time I interviewed John Voight and he said his favorite movie of Angelina Jolie's was Life or something like it. And that's when I knew something was wrong with John Voight. (laughs) (laughs) I should have gone right to the authorities right then. Yeah. um, I think we know what my favorite Angelina Jolie film is. Well, you certainly bring up Salt as if it is your favorite Angelina Jolie movie, but I can't decide if it's a bit because no one's laughing. We're all worried. I think people with taste know that Salt is her best film. Hmm. I think my answer to that is, I'll be, I'll be honest, the woman is not in that many group movies. Not that many. I would say her best performance, <laughs> strangely, and this is not my academy caping, her best performance is Girl Interrupted. That's that makes right. you think, who the hell is this woman? She That's is correct. hilarious, as well as, like, harsh as fuck. Yeah. Uh, okay. I get, you know what? I will actually say that um, I... Sky Captain of the World of Tomorrow looks too beautiful for me to actually say it's the worst. I will say it's The Tourist. Oh, also true. The Tourist is abysmal. And Salt is, you know, I'm I'm being me. Uh, I would actually go with Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Also good. Because I think that that film, um, her and she and Brad in it, it just just really encapsulates what a um, Hollywood film is and what a Hollywood film with, like, celebrities in it is you know it feels classic in that way mm-hmm. i, I want to say about the tourist never ceases to blow my mind that the person who directed that movie is florian henkel von donnersmark who wrote and directed the lives of others which is one of the devastating 2000s thrillers and then he did that anyway people contain multitudes it's like the guy who did um uh, michael Cimino, who did deer hunter and then heaven's gate just like up is down Success, failure, etc. I would argue though that she's got a lot of good movies. She's got uh, girl besides Girl Interrupted, God of Sixty Seconds, the Lara Croft films. Not none of those are good. I can't believe you just said that, but all right, all right, Lewis, get some taste, okay? <laughs> the Cradle of I, Life, I am a Tomb the Cradle of Life. Yeah, I, I, excuse me. I like relate to Tomb Raider. I like want an anthropology degree so I can be. Tomb Raider. <laughs> what those about Gia? Gia, 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 I would say, is in her top five. And also the last of Faye Dunaway seeming like somebody who wouldn't kill you. Yeah. <laughs> Hackers. 
Definitely. Doctor's not bad. Uh, mm-hmm. The Bone Collector is a very good film. God, these are so old. I haven't yeah. thought about the Bone Collector in ages. Yeah. All right. Also, now I have Pushing I Ten. No, not good. A movie I've seen on TV four times. <laughs> All four times, I was sad I did it. Yeah. Okay, we have to get to the real star now, who is Kate Blanchett, my favorite actor, who at least turns out gives us something every year that we talk about for a second, where she's about to be in Nightmare Alley with, with uh, Guillermo del Toro's new movie, in which she will be reunited with Rooney Mara. Mm. Uh, uh, if you haven't seen the original Nightmare Alley with uh, Tyrone Power in the 40s, really good and it's a you know this weird haunted carnival vibe my favorite Kate Blanchett performance I think ultimately is Carol because I mean obviously it's a movie I'm obsessed with I've brought it up on this podcast a thousand times but people who can do sophistication in an old school way like that's as close to MAGA as I'll ever get because she so embodies what it's like to be a cosmopolitan woman of a city who also has a dark inner world that she can't quite reconcile. So I don't know if you guys are, I don't know if you, Tracy, are, for instance, are a Carol uh, fan. I've never seen Carol. Oh, I really recommend it. And it's not long either. I I've really recommend things. it. You know who loves it is Brandon Taylor, the author. Oh, of course. Who was yes. on your show. Mm-hmm. And he's great. He's so great. And he loves it. When he did my podcast, he wore his Carol shirt, which he talks about all the time on his Twitter. I have a Carol shirt too. Why didn't we wear ours together? Um, and But the downside of this is... My least favorite Kate Blanchett movie is also directed by Todd Haynes, which is I'm Not There, the Bob Dylan kaleidoscopic you know, like, you know, I've biopic. I've never seen it. I've never seen it. But people always are like, it's really good. It sure is not. Uh, I came out of that movie. First, like, first of all, if you, know, if you know the biographical information of Bob Dylan, that doesn't change afterwards. Like they don't add to your perception of him. It's just a bunch of stunty performances as Bob Dylan. And you leave thinking... Well, all right. I guess Kate Blanchett can wear a curly wig and smoke sometimes. That's all I got from it. Okay. Not good. Uh, well, you know, my favorite Kate Blanchett is definitely Pushing Ten. <laughs> <laughs> I wish she was. Uh, I can wish my co-host was dead, right? That's PC. Okay. Yeah. Would you believe I've said Pushing Ten and the Angelina Jolie part just for that bit? nice work uh i honestly think mine is notes on a scandal oh fabulous i don't even know that i would have cast her in that movie because the role is supposed to be kind of a mess like she's supposed to really not have her life together and Kate blanchett seems all too professorial and regal that said Mm -hmm. i guess that adds to the performance too it seems more of a winslet role to be honest it it is and it was originally supposed to be kate winslet and she who reeks of mess generally speaking which i love you know just just eating a hoagie and fucking her students right but done but kate is just so fucking good and the other one obviously is the talented mr ripley which Which, is one of my favorite fucking films ever um, but both she of those... performs the entire movie like over her shoulder as Meredith Logue, like constantly looking back at a Dickie, like yeah. she... Dickie, just giving you a full like Joan Crawford <laughs> neck the entire time she's performing. Um, yeah, I mean, I th- you think it's between both of those films, but you know, obviously, she has more of a tour de force in Notes on a Scandal. Uh, yeah. Talented Mr. Ripley is about is about the faggots. <laughs> right. it's a gay film uh least favorite for her There's some options i mean 
Indiana Jones and the King of the Crystal Skull is right there. I think that is almost the definitive answer. I think you might be on to something. I also hate Cinderella, even though she is good in it. Yeah. Um, she's also in the... She's, you know, I mean, also Curious Cage with Benjamin Button. Oh, I know. A movie which I only saw for the first time recently, and it just felt right out of my head. Like, Also, it's like, that's Taraji's nomination? Come on, guys. Yeah. Um, Tracy, do you have hard Blanchette opinions? I generally like her, but I haven't seen that many of her movies. I I feel like I I saw Elizabeth. Very oh, good. Very good. good. Yeah. She's sure. very good in that. And she's very and I did see Notes on a Scandal and I read the book. Okay. <laughs> that sounds like you. You read you read the notes yourself. All yes. of the notes on that scandal. I read them. I read all the notes. I helped compile them into a book. Um no. Is there a clip notes on a scandal? I'll read that. <laughs> I'll I'll send them to you. <laughs> Um, but oh, I also feel like she's um, good in Blue Jasmine. She's like real kooky cuckoo beans. Oh yeah, no. Uh, what I love about that performance, I mean, we don't have to dwell on Mr. Allen at this time, but um, iconic. She, he me, is the moment. Oh, great. Um, <laughs> that that movie is like if the Judy Davis character in Husbands and Wives, which is one of my favorite performances in a, a Woody Allen movie, was like dragged out to feature length, and we got to see her f- fully shatter and fully. Uh, decompose after her uh, marriage and money come to an end. You know what I'll actually admit? I have never seen um, The Life Aquatic. Is she oh. good in it? Yeah, I mean, she's like kind of not the star of it. Uh, but I, I also, that guy's movies just don't ever do it for me. Just, like, it never have. I'm not a Royal Tenenbaums person or whatever. Mm, you know, I am at I think at some point I fell out with Wes Anderson films, and I truly have not seen any of his recent ones. I think the this last new one seems like a rehash of a rehash of a rehash of the last twenty-four he's done. But the French Dispatch, yes, no, yeah. I, I have not seen um, actually anything since watching part of Grand Budapest Hotel on a plane. Uh, so I haven't seen that. Isle of Dogs. I guess there's only two. That I haven't seen, and then I never saw Life Aquatic. But Grand Budapest Hotel, I didn't love, but it, it just went full silly anyway, which I think his movies rarely do. Actually, my favorite of his is Moonrise Kingdom, and Moonrise an Kingdom awesome is performance beautiful. by um, Francis McDormand. Yeah, beautiful, beautiful, um, really heartfelt film too for mm-hmm. him. So you know. So anyway, sound off in the comments. Tell us we're wrong. Pick your favorites, least favorites. This what is like my favorite topic. Can we just do this every week? What com- what comments? Just I, I like being told I'm wrong and That's stuff. That's fair. You know? I'm just like sound off in the comments like we have a message <laughs> okay. board. Leave Tracy alone. Please leave yeah. me alone. Okay, I don't want to know. I know at I'm wrong. Tra- I don't at, care. At Tracy, we're not celebrities. You can at us and be mean to us. <laughs> You're not even on Twitter. They can't get to you. It's like go go crazy. Tweet at us. Says the person who's not on Twitter. <laughs> uh, all right. When we're back, keep it. And we're back with our favorite segment of the episode. It is Keep It. Tracy, yes. you're our guest. You get to go first. I love it. Okay. My Keep It today, well, I guess it's not my only chance to do this. So my Keep It is, <laughs> my keep it is to the media 
demanding responses for racism from the people who have been aggrieved. So in this case, I'm thinking of John Gruden's horrible racist homophobic comments and the media immediately rushing to the black people he knows to be like, hey, do you think he's a racist? Because A, do you do we think John Gruden got to where he racist to the actual black people in the room to their face, like being like, oh, you're a coon. Like he wasn't doing that. So they're not going to know. <laughs> he did like it he to went... me. <laughs> he did? <gasps> yeah, famously. I was just Ira, walking down the street. I was walking down the street. John Gruden drove by and said, hey, coon. Yeah, <laughs> how dare he? <laughs> But it's like you have he worked at ESPN for like a billion years. He was a head coach for a billion years. Why don't you ask one of these rich white people that he was being racist with to comment on it and stop trying to make this a Mike Tirico, Tony Dungy moment? It's just and it happens all the time. Like, I don't know if you guys remember the NFL player Riley Cooper, who said the N word a bunch like at some concert. And then they made Michael Vick go and like defend him like to clean to be like if Michael Vick the dog killer is willing to stand up for this guy he can't possibly be terrible or like when Ellen had um Kevin Hart on to be like he's not homophobic he's a comedian and I stand up for people it's just like I'm tired of having to hear from the aggrieved party on these things because they're never gonna say the person is racist because the person wasn't racist to them like they're not idiots they're racist. They know not to do it to your face. So keep mm. it to that shit. It also feels to me like a dis- that's like a, a call some white person is making. Yes. Who wouldn't care to hear from these people on a regular basis about other topics. But they, they heard the word race and thought, oh, now here's my chance to ask a black person a question. You know, it's mm. it just it speaks to um, a, a lack of camaraderie, I think. <laughs> It's also this thing in the media that they do where you sort of like, you know, this man is racist, you know, and but it's sort of like this. Um, we got to check in with other people so we can play both sides of mm. conversation, you know, like, well, here are some people who say that they're racist. It's like, how about you just definitively say this man is racist? He said racist things. So that is racist, you know, and but you always need like supporting documents to prove in things like this, you know, right? Like the dissenting opinion, like we don't need a dissenting opinion. We don't need to hear from a different gay person to be like, well, you know, sometimes it means a bundle of sticks, you know, and like he never (laughs) he never made me, you know, it's like the same thing with people who are called out for sexual assault. It's like, oh, well, he never made advances at me. Like, okay, well, he's not raping every single person that he comes in contact with. Like, we don't need defenses from people who fit in the groups. It just try like, I mean, and also, of course, we saw this all the time with Trump. It was like, oh, Trump did something terrible. Let's trot out a person. Like, let's trot out Jared Kushner because he was anti-Semitic. Like, it's just, it's, it's dumb. And like, I would rather hear from the people who are, in the room in these moments. Like I would rather hear from, you know, your number one white best friend if you're being racist. Like, what does that person have to say about it? You know? Mm. Speaking of Trump, um, I am so sorry. Keep it to me. <laughs> but he made me fucking laugh this morning. Oh, <laughs> oh, good Lord. Uh, his statement uh about the death of Colin Powell is high comedy. And a reminder that sometimes he's funny. 
Um, Don't speak for me. Going on. Wonderful to see Colin Powell, who made big mistakes on Iraq and famously so-called weapons of mass destruction, be treated in depth so beautifully by the fake news media. Hope that happens to me someday. He was a classic rhino, if even that, always being the first to attack other Republicans. He made plenty of mistakes, but anyway, may he rest in peace. Good Lord. Not anyway. <laughs> anyway. Anyway, may he rest in peace. Enough about this. Rest in peace, my guy. I'm sorry. That is so funny. Also, and he probably put it out on his, like, Trump stationary, like... <laughs> Thing that he, that he uses uh, because he doesn't have a Twitter. He faxed it to Fox. Right. <laughs> uh, anyway, Lewis, what is your keeper? My keep it uh, will be brief, and it will also sound like bad stand-up. Uh, my keep it is to the phrase shit show. I just do not want to hear it anymore. It upsets me when I hear it. It doesn't mean anything anymore. And by the way, what was a shit show to begin with? When someone describes something as a shit show, now I have an image in my head that is so vile, I will have to explain it to you. Let us now picture old vaudeville. Picture like a rickety stage. And like, you know, people in the audience and it's like kind of loud and rowdy. All right. I'm, what I picture is someone on the stage with puppets. And because they're famous puppets, I'm thinking of like Lamb Chop and Hush Puppy. And mm. like shit is flying at them and like back and forth from the crowd to the stage. Picture like mud flying, you know, like Woodstock 94, except it's during a puppet show. That mm. goes through my head every time I hear the phrase shit show. And I don't want to say that that image is wrong, but also we don't have a point of reference for what a shit show ever was. So you saying it like, ugh, what a shit show. Like, I would know what that is. I'm left to conjure this image, and it continues to disturb me and my memories of Sherry Lewis, which up until this point were wonderful. Wow. Yes. You know. Um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> uh, uh, big boobs. <laughs> Anyway, so, uh, no, well, the etymology of shit show from a cursory Google says that it first, the earliest recorded evidence of shit show being used came from the 70s. So, you know, it's not even people were throwing shit at the stage, you know, when they didn't like um, this production of Twelfth Night. Okay. You know? I just... so, it, so it does seem to be like a modern phrase. You know, mm-hmm. I, I was thinking, is it steeped back when, like, you know, they used to throw things at the stage, didn't they? They threw apples and tomatoes, and mm-hmm. maybe they threw their own excrement. I don't know what right. people did back. That's, maybe that's how they got the plague. <laughs> You're like a scientist. This um, is very fouchy of you. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Okay. Mask up. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, just stop saying it. Uh, I don't like thinking about it. And I don't like the um, the naughtiness with which people say it. Like, Ugh, what a shit show. Just don't want to hear it. If you say shit show, you need if you say shit show, you need to say it with like with like um, real force. Like like you're in the cast of succession. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see. Yeah, you have to have some angst. Do you have a preference for what you prefer? Like, oh, what a disaster. Like, what yeah. a nightmare. Oh, I love that. Like, oh, what a- you, say disaster and say it like that guy who does gymnastics commentary every Olympics when someone falls off the beam. Disaster. <laughs> That's what I want. Disaster. All right. Well, my keep it this week goes to Megan McCann. Oh. 
She's back. She's 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 back, baby. Uh, she did an interview with uh, Ramin Satuta, who wrote Ladies Who Punch, uh, the book which describes the goings on at The View. He did an interview with Megan, you know, her finally revealing why she quit The View. And she says that when she was, <laughs> she said when she had a leave of absence from the show and she came back, she asked, uh, did anyone miss her? And Joy Behar said, nope, didn't miss you. Zero. <laughs> and she cried during the commercial breaks uh, and Joy never apologized to her. And um, that's when she made the decision she had to leave. I was about to jokingly say, oh, did Joy Behar like push her out of the studio with a broom <laughs> one day? And basically she did that verbally. Yeah. She, I mean, she talks a bit about her time on the show, too, uh, and says that um, Whoopi Goldberg actually did apologize to her um, the next day for that. Uh, Girl, will you please stop talking? moment um which which is wild that that to her she said was one of her like breaking points too because i'm like they have told you to shut up for years on that show truly i just feel i feel like megan mccain most of her time is spent waiting for an apology like i think she has nothing else to really do or something Mm -hmm. the real but the real keep it goes to um her critiques of the view uh where she thinks that she was not respected on the show as a republican this is all you know info that's coming out in her um memoir this week which is called bad republican girl i'm asleep she's a sounds like any republican actually Yeah. yeah So, also, like, don't ask questions you don't want to know the answer to. You shouldn't have asked if anybody missed you if you couldn't handle the truth, girl. Like, <laughs> you yeah. Why did you ask no? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you yeah. think anybody Joy was going to be like, yes? <laughs> don't uh, ask. She goes on to say, too, that, like, they, she thinks that, like, um, they get the stories the night before and... Um, she would always pick the ones that make Democrats look bad because she's the Republican. Uh, And it was hard for her to get Republican stories on the show because there aren't enough Republicans working at The View. She's like, you guys need to hire some more Republicans. I already hate the fact that they think they need a conservative voice on the show for like ratings and drama, but that we got to hire Republicans on the fucking show too. Shut up. Yeah. She unfortunately just has never said one I was going to say interesting thing, but insightful thing. Sorry, what is the moment Megan McCain had where we fell in love with her incisive commentary? I like she's just an utter failure of a panelist. Sorry, it's sort of her relationships with gay men in New York media. I feel like you know, like she's friends with Andy Cohen and uh, Ramin well, in his before. <laughs> famously, when he picked Bethany's side in Bethany versus Carol, and I stand by mm. that. Um, She's friends with Ramin, who mentions in the article, full disclosure, uh, Megan McCain and I are friends. And, you know, I think that she has a lot of people who give her cover as a interesting person. You know, it's like, I'm friends with her. So you have to imagine that they have some sort of camaraderie. You know, they, they talk about subjects that might be interesting to both of them. Um but I just can't imagine like an actual friendship with this woman because she has never said anything that is remotely good. 
you know? And it's like, it's, you, and it's like, what does that even say about you? You're like, oh, I'm friends with this Republican woman, you know, who like, yeah. who trashes um, my beliefs constantly. But, you know, we watch Drag Race together. So that's fun. Mm. Yeah, it's like, I also feel like the thing about her that is the joke, but is also really the truth of the matter is she's John McCain's daughter. Like, I think that like, we joke about it now because she says like my dad all the time. But really, that is the most interesting, if you can even call it that thing about her, like, she's such a like, blah, nothing. She's not even she doesn't even have good Republican hot takes, you know, like, at least Elizabeth Hasselbeck was saying actual things, even though she was deeply wrong and horrible. She had like something about her. Meghan McCain is literally just, oh, your dad was famous and ran right. for president and was a prisoner of war and apparently an American hero, according to some. I don't know. Not qualified right. she, to say. She, she uh, was less of an a Jane Fonda or an Angelica Houston, someone who emerges from their father's shadow yeah. and becomes their own person, was more of, shall we say, a Melissa Rivers. Yes. Damn, Lewis. I, I mean, has Melissa Rivers put out a stand-up special recently? No. So She hasn't even <laughs> dropped a good album. What is she no. up to? <laughs> right. She's not um, on the Hollywood Squares. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I would actually say that that's the real point, Tracy. Like, the the... Republican takes that she even had on the show were also just so basic. Mm -hmm. It makes sense in her saying that that's what she picked on the show, the things that would make Democrats look bad. That was really just her main focus. And so if you're just going on with, the Democrats are wrong, they're bad in this, you don't actually have a take, you're just being um, contradictory and incendiary. Yeah. Thanks. And Playing the villain. Her, yeah. Do you yeah. remember her hair, though, sometimes? That was the best when her hair would be horrible. Well, it was like the last few weeks. It's like she, she came out looking like Chun-Li. <laughs> it was like her hairdresser was really like, you know what? I don't like you either. Like, <laughs> she announced she was leaving and they were like, all bets are off. Bye. <laughs> I also, since we're talking about The View, I just want to point out that um, since I also mentioned Real Housewives of New York City a second ago, uh, Ebony K. Williams, who joined Real Housewives of New York, and I constantly said, didn't fit in on the show, and she was boring, and she was using it as an audition to get um, on a show like The View or something. She just wanted the name recognition for being on the show. She now was just on The View, you know, being tested out as um, the conservative voice, and um, there it is. There yeah. it fucking is. Oh, wow. Yeah. She's the new... Uh Rachel Campos, like they'll give her three tries and then say, actually, it's a no. <laughs> Probably. I'd be the views conservative voice if they want a man on that panel. Oh, wow. This is some real uh, morning show energy I'm getting from you. All right. Yeah. Shake it up. Let's shake it up. Okay. And Enough of I this women's bullshit. We need yeah. men on TV talking about the news. Damn it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I would love to have morning show energy. I would love to fuck Juliella Margulies. Okay. Okay. Well, hey, there we are. <laughs> Reese Witherspoon and I have that in common. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that storyline. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, Tracy, thank yeah. you for being on the show. Oh, loved it. You thank you guys so much for having me. This was very, very fun. And, yeah. you know, I'm a, I'm a keep it stand. So I feel like dreams do come true, people. Believe in yourself. <laughs> well, you know what? I'm going to, I'm going to read a book and then. Listen to your podcast, The Stats. Read a book and come be on my podcast. 
Yeah. Well, he's that like, incredibly daunting. He's but like, all right. yeah, <laughs> never. Yeah. <laughs> um, the stats. Go and listen to it wherever uh, you find your podcast. And thank you to Sutton Foster for joining us this week. This has been Keep It. Keep It is a Crooked Media production. Our senior producer is Kendra James. Our producer is Caroline Reston. And our associate producer is Brian Semmel. Our executive producer is Ira Madison III. That I, Louis Fertel, do a good job too. Our audio engineers are Charlotte Landis and Kyle Seglin, and the show is mixed and edited by Charlotte Landis. Thank you to our digital team, Matt DeGroote, Nar Melkonian, and Milo Kim for production support every week. chocolate treats mixed into dark chocolate ice cream, the Tillamook Chocolate Collection is a chocolate game changer because the thing that pairs best with chocolate is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy.